Hello and welcome to the She's Heard podcast. My name is Emily Jennings and you found the place where extraordinary everyday people from different professions and walks of life share about how they found their voice and are using it to speak up and create meaningful change. Today I'm speaking with Tori Ivanik, author of No Big Deal, from athlete to advocate, a memoir of childhood betrayal and a journey to justice. Tori is a mom of two energetic kids, wife to an amazing man, and founder of Open Space. Tori coaches people to navigate life changes with a sense of fun, adventure, and an appreciation and respect for nature. She grew up in Ohio, worked her way west to California, then replanted her family in Colorado a few years ago. Through her coaching practice, Tori inspires people to grow, heal, and live more authentic and intentional lives. Writing the book has been cathartic for Tori and has brought greater clarity to her work and life purpose. In this episode, Tori shares about her process of acknowledging the abuse she experienced as a young gymnast from her coach, the impact it had on her life and others, and what it took for her to heal, thrive, and seek justice. Tori now uses her personal experience as well as her formal training as a homeopath to help folks navigate change and thrive. You can learn more at openspace4, that's the number four, dot com. You can find her book, on or after July 31st, 2018, on Amazon.com. Tori's story is a Me Too memoir, and the Me Too movement has always been about healing. I love this story because it's one example of how one woman pursued healing and justice while bringing hope and helping others on their journey as well. Tori illuminates the uncomfortable, tricky pitfalls and nuance of trusting, loving, and being afraid of her abusive coach. I love and stand with Tori's bold commitment to raising awareness on consent, reclaiming healthy sex, living with compassion, and dramatically reducing sexual violence for future generations. It truly is an honor to share the story of healing and justice with you. So without further ado, here's our conversation. So you are formally trained as a physician's assistant, a homeopath, you've run mastermind groups for women. You are a mother to a five and a seven-year-old, and you are a wife, and you are a daughter, and you are a friend. You are many things. I am. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and now I can say I'm an author, and it's so exciting. Yes, it is exciting. (laughs) It's no small feat just to own your story and to do all the work to summarize it and to package it and to edit it and to be willing to be seen and read and heard and all of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a fun adventure for sure. What prompted you to write it? Yeah, that's a great question. So there were a couple different things that sort of happened at the same time. I had kids obviously, and that was, you know, it just really shifted how I thought of myself, how I thought of my past, how I wanted to be in the world. And with my past experience as a physician assistant and hearing people's stories, I had seen particularly teenage moms or moms who had had a big trauma when they were a teen, when their children got to the age that they were when they either had their baby or, you know, had that trauma, it almost seemed like they were angry at their children because they didn't have the life that their parents had, you know? And And that not to say that anybody was doing that consciously, you know, but it just, I really saw a a real pushback and a real struggle in those parents and those children. And I, I observed that and I didn't want that to happen to me. So I was really thinking about like how, 
how have I healed from this? And I really thought, oh my, you know, I've done all the healing I need to. He's in prison already. However, then I was going to a church and the worship leader at the church got arrested for very similar acts that, um, that my coach, you know, had, had done. And so he was 30, the, the worship leader was 30, which was the same age my coach had been when he abused me. And it just really ripped the bandaid off for my, of my wound. And, and I didn't realize how impactful it would be to see some other predator doing similar things and thinking, you know, now I have a daughter, I have children. They weren't with that man at church, but like, you know, who would have, who would have known five years from now if I would have had them with him. So it really triggered me to the point where I thought, well, gosh, okay, maybe I do need to do more work around this. And so I started sharing my story more. And in the sharing of the story, at least two people told me that by my sharing my story, they went back and made police reports about their stories. And that really tipped the scales for me. You know, I'd always wanted to write a book. I had always said, you know, I want to have kids and I want to write a book, but it hadn't become something that was very palpable. I didn't really know how to start it or how to do it, but I met a friend who was a writing coach and I just loved her. I knew I could work with her. And so she made this just easy door opening way of like, let's just see. And so I started and next thing I knew I had written a book. So this has been something you've been processing through for yes. over a decade, right? Yeah. So we went forward and made a police report in 2006. Um, I say we, because it was a friend of mine, uh, another gymnast on my team was part of the abuse as well. And so we went together and made our police report in 2006. And it took a year and a half before we went to trial. And it was a five-day long jury trial and he went to prison. But the story, you know, really kind of intertwined too from even when it first started with she and I. High-level gymnastics, not too many women or men for that matter make it to that level. And so as you get older, your team gets smaller and smaller and smaller, you know. And so we only probably had maybe eight or 10 girls on our team when I met my, my friend who was the other victim and, or what well, I had known her because she was at the gym forever. But like when we became friends and we're on the same team and everything, it was pretty small. And so another friend of mine on the team had told me about her abuse way before anything ever happened with me. And so I was aware that something was going on, that there was a you know, at that time, I would have called it a relationship, right? Because I didn't think of it as abuse necessarily. Mm -hmm. I knew that was going on. I knew it was a secret, right? Um, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I wasn't supposed to know about it. So my, my radar was already up even when my coach started talking to me in ways that I knew was like not quite right. She and I have a very intertwined story. It's been an interesting and, and one of the most powerful friendships in my, in my life for sure. It's been quite a journey for the two of us, especially when I was the one to reach out to her in 2006 and say, hey, like, how you doing? You know? So I emailed her, you know, and, and we had very similar lives at that time. We both had really good jobs that we liked and we both owned our own houses and we both had Labrador retrievers, but neither one of us had a functional relationship. And that was my, my like call to action, basically, as I called off an engagement and I was like, what, what is going on with me? So um, were you just afraid to commit or you just, what was, yeah. What, how did it show question. up for you and maybe her? I, I mean, you can't really speak for her, but it's interesting because right. you shared about like how that email exchange in a previous conversation, you shared about the email exchange and you're like, how's it going? I'm 
got a good job and a house and a dog, but no relationship. <laughs> and she's like, me too. <laughs> yeah. You're like, maybe there's something that needs deeper healing here. Absolutely. Yeah. So I had already started seeing a therapist, I think when I reached out to her, cause I was like, have you ever seen a therapist? You know, like that was kind of my next, my first email was, Hey, how you doing? I have a house and a dog and a good job. How are you? You know? And she wrote back and it was, it was really funny. Cause she was right, like, yeah, I have a house and a dog and a good job too. But so then my next one was, but I can't, I can't have a functional relationship. And I think maybe it might have something to do with our coach. And have you ever gone to a therapist? And I kind of just blah, unloaded on her, you know? And then we ended up jumping on the phone and, you know, she had had some long relationships, but just not necessarily failure to commit, but just like, wasn't able to really truly love. I don't think, I don't know. I mean, I can't, I definitely can't speak for, for her. I dated wonderful men, but I just like, something wasn't right with me. I mean, like, that's what I really came to find out is it's not, it wasn't, something wrong with the men. It was something wrong with me that I hadn't healed, that I wasn't able to then really truly open up and love someone. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it, but you know, who knows? Um, so that was, that was the point when you're like, huh, this needs further investigation. And when you start yeah. to pursue more, um, intensely your healing. Yeah. Like, like clinically healing. Yes. Like yeah. before that, I think I had done a ton of really good work on my own. I didn't know I was doing work at the time. I just knew these things make me happy and I'm going to do more of them, you know? So when I graduated from college, like college, I drank way too much and I was in Ohio still. And I wasn't, it wasn't a place that I thrived. I worked too much. I drank too much. Like that was college basically. So I was in Colorado for the ski trip and we're staying in a condo and you know, it was very much vacation and beautiful and nice, but I was just drawn. I was like, this is powerful. Like I remember standing outside in the mountains one night and just hearing the wind through the trees. And I grew up in Ohio and there's great trees there, you know, it's green and lush, but it's gray all the time. And the sun shines in Colorado. I just was like, I need to be here in these mountains. And so as soon as I graduated from college, the following spring, I was like, I'm moving to Colorado. I did a little stint on a fishing boat in Alaska first to make the money to get there. But the following season I was I was a ski instructor in Colorado and I ended up staying there for three years and just loving the mountains. You know, I, I started out just alpine skiing and then the next season I I took on telemark skiing and I started rock climbing in the gym at the rec center there. I was coaching gymnastics actually. Um, so I was coaching the girls gymnastics team at the rec center and started climbing and was climbing all summer long. Just loved that outdoor adventure life. And so it was the first time that I got to be an athlete without being a competitor. Hmm. Um, and I loved the, the fact that I wasn't just rock climbing or just skiing, you know, like, so I could, cause I used to just be really hard on myself. Like if I'm not the best and this is the only thing I'm doing, like what's wrong with me. So then I took up playing hockey too, because I like that, you know, spreading myself out so that I didn't have so much like, kind of self guilt of not being the best. Like I was just really hard on myself. And it was, I remember like thinking like, well, but I'm playing hockey and I'm skiing, so I don't have to be the best rock climber. And it was a new mentality for me to not have to be the best. Um, and just to love the adventure of it and not just the sport, but the, the nature and the, the smells and the sounds and the, you know, just all of it. 
um, just really immersed in that environment. It was so, so healthy for me and healing for me. And, it, and if you would have asked me at the time, like, are you doing this to heal something? I'd be like, no, <laughs> I didn't. It was not in my consciousness at all that that's what I was doing, but that's absolutely what I was doing. And I'm so glad I did because those are really, for me, those are excellent coping mechanisms. You know, it's way better for me to go rock climbing than it is for me to drink, you know, five beers. So um, I, I built those things into my life of like, those were the things that I did. It was good. So when I ask the question where you're from, typically we kind of think of like geographically where you're from. And that is important because the environment you grow up in obviously has an impact on, on your uh, coming of age. Um, but there's also like where you're from from, like what is the tone of your family? And, and so where are you like from from? Yeah, that's a great question. So my first 10 years of life, I was from what I would have considered like the ideal childhood, big open spaces and lake in the, like behind our house and happy, healthy, like from my perspective at the time, I didn't know there was a problem at all. (laughs) So I remember just feeling so free at home and so loved and everything good until literally until the day my mom told me they were getting divorced. So I, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's hard to figure out what really was going on. Maybe they were hiding it from me. Maybe I just was repressing like they're fighting or whatever. But after the day my mom told me they were getting divorced, I felt like my parents fought all the time. And that was only a short period of time from when she told me they were getting divorced to when she and I actually moved out of our house. But my brother, who was just a few years older, when I, when my mom had told me and I went to him, I was like, what is happening? And he was like, well, duh, you know, like, so he was much more aware, I guess, of what was going on. They were both public school teachers and really just rural, healthy, happy childhood until that day. And then everything just changed. And at first, like the first year that I lived with my mom and my brother lived with my dad, so they split us up and that was an interesting decision on their part. The first year when it was just me and my mom, I mean, honestly, what 11-year-old girl wants a 13-year-old brother? Like none, right? So it was kind of freeing to be away from my brother, but I missed him and my dad and it was hard. But then the following year, she remarried and I acquired a stepdad. And really that was it had been hard enough being away from my dad and my brother, but then with a, a new male figure in my household, I just felt like I was always walking on eggshells. He had never had children. He was 40. He was a lawyer. He didn't really know how to handle like just a 12 year old girl. Um, and then I had my dad and my brother who were kind of, my dad wanted me to come back and live with him. And so like, I felt like I could never really be safe or ha- make, make everybody happy basically. So I really turned to the gym. The gym was my comfort zone at that point because, you know, I was in a new school. I didn't love it there. Um, I didn't feel safe or comfortable at home, really. Like, I just felt like always a little bit anxious. And so then I really laid into like more time at the gym. And that's when my coach started really, you know, talking to me a lot and telling me how great I was and making me tell him I loved him and, you know, and it, it just started getting really, I mean, I, I don't know if I would have called it crazy at the time. I knew it was, he made me feel special is basically what it came down to. You know, he made me feel like I was smart and I was beautiful and 
I was going to be okay, you know, even though my household, my family life was not doing so well. Yeah. And that's a big deal when there's a lot of like instability and chaos. And I mean, teenagehood, even with like healthy, stable family is awkward and <laughs> and uncomfortable. So when you, when you have these other variables that make you more vulnerable to abuse of a power dynamic, then yeah, you can look back and see what, how this went on and why you didn't think it was a problem. Yeah. yeah it's interesting really when you look back at the story. I mean, I, I wrote him letters for years after he moved away and he wrote me letters, you know, too, for, for a while there. But, and then like when I, was applying to get into PA school, he was a PA already. And so he wrote me a letter of recommendation. So I was 24 at that time. Yeah. So like, I definitely still rely, like thought of him as a mentor, father figure, like good role in my life, good person in my life on some levels, right? Like I knew by that time that like, I didn't, I wish that a part of it hadn't happened, but I didn't, own it for what it really was. I definitely hadn't painted him as a bad person or like someone who was abusive to me. It was really until even like the two days before the trial, when I was prepping with the prosecuting attorney and she asked me, she was like, why did you think that he would talk to you on the phone when you did the tapped phone call? And I, without even hesitating, I'm 30 at this time. I said, oh, I knew he still loved me and respected me enough to talk to me. And I like, I wish I had a picture of my prosecuting attorney's face. It was perfect. She just, her jaw dropped. And I was like, oh, (laughs) like just her facial expression, like made something in my brain click. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. He never loved me or respected me. He just, oh. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, like our brains are such powerful things and our subconscious is so real. And really even like walking into the trial and seeing him for the first time in probably 12 or 15 years, I don't know. My first like initial gut reaction was to go up and hug him. So like you cannot separate out that like innate, like I love this person kind of thing. It's the the one book that probably helped me the most when I was like kind of studying in on this was a book about incest because I can imagine and I can't imagine incest, honestly, that's one thing that I just really can't wrap my head around. But like an uncle experience, I can imagine being similar in that you have this love for him, but then there's this other side of it. And like being able to try and separate that out, I think is really, really difficult. Yeah. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. Um, to can you give us a summary of of what happened? What happened? Sure. And and part of I think what's so powerful about your story is that there's a spectrum of the of violence. There's a spectrum of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Women, we have an influence on culture. <laughs> we are the mothers. We are creators. We are way more powerful than I think most of us give ourselves credit for. So the power in your story is that it's nuanced to show that the one point on the spectrum to show that it is nuanced. The people that we love and respect and trust are also the ones that are perpetuating this really damaging violence. It's like the guy at your church being like, I never would have picked him out of a crowd to be a pedophile, right? It's that's, that's the, excuse my language, but the mind fuckery of this. So the men that we love and that we trust 
that are causing these kinds of things. So as women, we need to take responsibility for how we are either looking the other way or perpetuating it through not speaking up or through not noticing. And, and it's not a guilt thing. It's a wake up thing. Yes. And that it's nuanced and we're learning about it and, and it, but it's time because this has been a silent epidemic for so long that affects men too. Absolutely. There's power in every story, but since your, your story is not as, um, it's not like you're walking down the street and a guy pulls a gun on you and throws you in the bushes, right? It was, it was something that's more gradually built over time. And so there's power in that because you can then look back and be like, ah, this is what happened. And these were the signs that I looked away from. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So when I started writing the book, I had to dig back into like the, what happened and and the really, the first thing that I can ever remember where I was like, "Eh," you know, like just something wasn't quite quite right. It was before I was even told about my friend on the team who was, was, I'm just going to say sleeping with him because that's how I would have thought it or felt it at the time, you know, or heard it. I I probably was about 12 and I was at our gym. There was a a platform because there was no in-ground pits there. So I was standing up on the platform and he was standing in front of me and one of my other friends was next to me. And he said, he said, you can't get down from the platform until you tell me you love me. And like, I was a pretty sassy little girl. And I was like, I'm not going to say that, you know, like I, 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 it made me so uncomfortable. And I was like, no. And he just stood there and he was, you know, six, six foot, maybe 200, 220 pounds. He was a bodybuilder. So he was a really big guy. And when I was 12, I probably weighed like 85 pounds, you know, and not to say he was like pushing me or touching me or anything, but he just put his, his body in front of mine. And so like he wouldn't let me down. And I finally was just like, fine, I love you, you know? And I said it with this smart ass attitude and that's so me. Um, but but it, it just kind of, I wouldn't say that it broke me, but it, it broke something in me with him like this, ha, you did what I said you, you know, I told you to do. And he was very like joking and very loving. People called him Mr. Wonderful. He was like this in their eyes, amazing guy. He also didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't swear. He was from a very devout religious background. I had this like looking up to him on some levels too. So that was the first thing that I really remember. But then he started, you know, just commenting on my body. Like he would always say like, I love your abs. Can I touch your abs? Like one time I remember wearing like a sports bra and shorts, which I like, you know, it was kind of a new thing. And I, I was a little bit uncomfortable doing it, but that day he was like, I want to touch your abs. And like, I remember his, his hand on my skin and just feeling like I'm never wearing this again, you know, like just this creepy, like, but I also loved him, you know, like, I mean, he was, if I, in gymnastics at that level, like if you screw up and your and your coach isn't there to catch you, you can die, you know? So he was always spotting us and he was so big that he could literally put me and he did this like put me in the palm of his hand like I tucked up into a little ball and he would just put me in his hand up above him so like we and he had kind of games like that too like where we would lay in his arms and he would throw us and we would spin as many times as we could and then he would catch us stuff like that like we didn't need to be doing that for gymnastics it was just like something fun to do with Greg so basically gradually like the body talk and stuff like that and then like at the end of the vault runway is a really good place for him to say things that other people don't hear because all the girls are at one end and he's coach or like spotting at the other end. So I remember doing 
a souk, which is like you hit the board, hit the vault with your hands and then flip over and land on your feet. And he would like, his hand would graze my breast as I was like flipping through the air. And then he oftentimes would hug us like after our vault or just like grab us and say something to us, whatever. And he'd say stuff like, I'm just trying to get some at practice, you know, and like kind of joking, but like, kind of like, what are you like, what is that? You know? And then it got further into like, he would, he was not a chiropractor yet, but he was, he knew he was going to chiropractic college. And so he would like learn chiropractic techniques from his chiropractor and then experiment on us, which now I look back and I'm like, that's totally illegal. Right. Um, but he would like crack my back. And so he would take me into like this back part of the gym where there really wasn't anybody around. And, and he would ask me questions about like, I had started dating a guy when I was 15. So this was not long before the actual abuse happened, but asking me questions about him and like, you know, did you do this yet? Or did you, you know, like just pushing boundaries of like, I don't want to talk to you about that, you know? But then he told me a story about him and a girlfriend and how, like, cause he was talking about world sex and I was so uncomfortable because I had not done anything like that. And I did not want to talk to my coach about it. But then like he played it off as like, well, somebody has got to teach you about this stuff, you know? And so he was telling me a story about a girlfriend he had who was giving him oral sex while he was driving down the road at 55 miles an hour. So from that day on, he would look at me and just be like 55, you know? And so like nobody knew he was talking about sex. It was like our little inside jokes that made me feel special and made me feel like, you know, he trusted me and he, and like, whatever. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I don't really know exactly when in that spectrum I learned about my friend and the fact that they were in a quote unquote relationship, you know, um, the truth was he was raping her and he had been probably for at least two years before I found out about it. Um, maybe, I don't know, you know, but like it went on for years with her. And so a friend told me about it. So I knew in secret for a while. And then she actually, when I got on her team and we got to be closer friends, we went to a camp and we ended up in the same house, like we were staying with other gymnasts and she told me about it herself. And so I was finally like, kind of like, thank God, I don't have to like act like I don't know anymore, but I had to act like I didn't know when she was telling me, you know, and asking questions because like, literally I didn't understand necessarily, like, what do you mean you're with him, you know? And so she told me, and then we knew, and, and it was interesting because she was a year older than me. She was definitely a way better gymnast than me. She was quote unquote cooler, you know, like in teenage worlds, like she was like kind of my idol type person. And then we, and we always had a little bit of a like, you know, teenage girl, interesting dynamic where I felt like, like she thought she was cooler than me or better than me or whatever. But then after she told me about them, it was like, we were close, you know, we became close. and. And then I remember, you know, so this was just about a year or so before the abuse happened with me. I remember her being jealous then, you know, like if she saw me with him alone, she'd ask, like, did he, did anything happen? You know, and I was like, no, no, you know, like, no. So the verbal stuff to me wasn't significant. You know, I felt like he didn't kiss me or anything. So nothing's happened. But looking back on it now, like it was all messed up way before he kissed me. You know, those boundaries were so, so blurred and so skewed way before he physically kissed me. And so all that was like that grooming process. And then 
about two months before he left, we went to a, would have been the last chance I had to qualify for nationals that year. And I hadn't been doing as well at meets as I did at practice. So like I should have qualified well before that, but this was my last chance fell off the beam a bunch of times, just like, you know, looking back, I'm like, God, I was so anxious. No wonder I couldn't perform, you know? Um, but I was devastated and I had to call my dad because this was before cell phones and text messages. And I went into like, we, so my coach was driving. I was with him as was my friend that he was in, in the relationship with. Um, and another teammate of ours was in the back seat. And this car that we were driving, I don't think it was his. I don't know whose car it was, but there was a windshield wiper. Like, this is the detail that I remember because it was so just like intense. Um, but there was a windshield wiper that was broken and it was raining. And he stopped and took his sock off and put his sock on the windshield wiper so it wouldn't scratch the glass. And then we stopped at this rest stop. And I ran in to call my dad because it was raining. And I got there and I like was just leaning against the phone booth. I'm totally dating myself with the phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> Putting my quarter in and, then, and he comes up and he just walked right up to me and the other girls were probably still like in the car or about to come in, but he walked right up to me and he just grabbed my chin and tipped it up and kissed me on the mouth. And I like, I just, you know, like I didn't know what to do at all. And then he walked, you know, like he gave me a big long hug and then he walked away to go get food or whatever he was doing. So, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh. So I call my dad and I'm sure I tell him, you know, that I failed and crying and a mess. And then we get back in the car and it was like, then all of a sudden it was like my girlfriend, my girl, my friend on one side that was in the relationship with him and then me and then him and we were all holding hands. And it was just like, just like, yeah, blow your mind. Like, how is this possibly happening? So then there were a few more times where he got me in a situation where I was alone and he kissed me again. I went to his house one time I remember, and he was kissing me and I was shaking and he was like, why are you shaking? And I'm like, because I'm nervous and I don't know, you know, like, and he was like, that just means that you love me. You, you must really love me, you know? And I like, I didn't know what to do with it. This is a 30 year old man who's married with a kid and he's, sleeping with my friend and I just felt so horrible about all of it. Can I it say all. something really quick? Yes. Yes. Like you feel horrible about it, but then the, the tricky part is you're also like, there's a tension and it's a kind it's a person that on some level you absolutely love their, Yeah. Love mm -hmm. and want his attention and trust his, that he catches you and prevents you from dying. Right. right? Yes. So that's the nuance. That's why it's so tricky to unravel. Yeah. It was so yeah. I mean, and, and at, by that time, you know, it had been three years probably since I told him I loved him on the platform. I mean, after that, like you tell him you love him. Like he just like, I love you. You know, like those words flowed back and forth like crazy. And looking back on it now as a parent, I'm like, how did parents think that that was okay? You know, I, I don't know how they could have not heard it because I mean, I felt like that was like commonplace. Hmm. Um, so we, I have another question. Yes. Do you remember how like you felt in your body when you had to lie and say, or the new, when you had to say, I love you, when it felt like you sold yourself out in that? Yeah. I mean, like my stomach just kind of hurt, you know, like that I'm starting sixth grade and I don't really want to kind of nervous, kind of like icky feeling. And that's it's so hard to remember 
because it was such a spectrum, you know, of like, it was never like he just grabbed me and did something, you know, it was, it was, there was so much lead up that it was almost as if like, I, I don't know how to say this, but it's as if it, it was my fault, right? Like, like I, I, I didn't say no then, and I didn't say no then, and I didn't say no then, no then. So why should I say no now? You know, like, and, and I was so young. I mean, I remember being so uncomfortable hearing him talk about sex because I didn't know anything about sex. And I had, this was a realization that I had in writing the book. And this is difficult to say, but I have never spoken to a man or heard a man speak to me about sex as much as that guy did. Like, it makes me uncomfortable now in an adulthood, like probably ever since then. Like, I just, I don't like to hear about it because it reminds me of him. And I don't like, I just don't, I don't like to talk about it, you know? Um, so that's something I'll be working on um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I don't think that's healthy, but I, yeah, like he just talked about it in, and in subtle ways, right? Like the 55. So he'd say that and I knew exactly what he was talking about. And so in my mind, like he's talking about sex constantly. So yeah, I, that was really kind of a, a, a hard realization when I was let's, writing the book. Yeah. Let's pause just for a second and take a deep breath. <laughs> Yeah. Because so often um, in sharing your stories of trauma, like you risk being re-traumatized, right? Yeah. So it's important to breathe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. So that really paints the picture of how he groomed you. Yeah. So then fast forward, he like, there's the grooming of, of the phrase 55. There's the moment you're, losing you're falling apart from not performing to your capability and also in the background like your family's going through like falling apart what family means to you is gone absolutely so there's all of that there's like the multi-layers of keeping you together (laughs) yeah and and then he crosses that boundary more publicly and yeah in front of like who's in on the secret in front of right. friend, other like the your other friend. victim right yeah. but there's also such a power play that he's feeding off of as well between you two exactly um, yeah how long was he in your life from like age 12 to 15 so 15. right after it, it all happened with me it was the spring that i was 15 that the abuse happened that, that the physical like stuff happened and he moved away before I turned 16 that summer. So he moved to go to chiropractic college. And right before he left, it might've been like a week or the night, I I don't know. Right before he left, he had a going away party with the other victim and I, and we both spent the night at his house. So in some ways that night was God awful because like, you know. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes. (laughs) How the hell did that happen? Like, I. Okay, with so your parents and her parents and his wife and his kids, like what? Oh God, I'm sure we lied. You know, like I don't know when when we were asked this, like, and we were looking back on it ten years ago. I mean, I I am sure that I said I'm going to go stay at her house, and she said I'm going to go stay at her house. You know, we just lied because we were teenagers and we we did those things. You know, um, and where was his wife? I don't know. But in the court, in his testimony, she was at the house. He said that there's no way. And, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, 
it's possible she could have been in the back bedroom. They had a baby. She could have just been sleeping. I don't think so, though. I feel like in my, like back in the day that it happened, I don't think she was at the house. I don't think that we had that kind of audacity. Like, I think that we would not have been able to do that. I think that she was out of town with the baby. I don't know. But it wouldn't, it, it, it's not beyond his audacity to do that, to have us both spend the night in his house with his wife in the back. So then we're sitting on this like fold out couch and we were, you know, playing video games at first and then like watching some TV and then just listening to music and I don't know, probably giving back massages because we did that all the time. You know, we were athletes and whatever, but then, you know, he's got her on one side of him and me on the other and he leans over and kisses her right in front of me. And then this is his pretty comical testimony too was like, I don't know. I mean, like he, he, he just lied a lot on the stand, but he said, well, she, you know, Shannon, it's fine to use her name. She's good with that. But Shannon kissed me and I wanted Tori to think it was no big deal. So I kissed her. So that's where I got the title of the book. I mean, they're his words, you know, and, I, and that it's exactly how I thought about it too. Like my friend had been raped for years. What happened with me really was all above the belt. It wasn't that big of a deal, you know, but that night was really good for Shannon and I, because we had witnessed each other's abuse. We could put the pieces back together based on that night for sure. When we started reconnecting, you know, like Shannon had a really, she thought everything happened when she was 17, but that was only a few months before he left. And that was not, you know, definitely not the case. She had to, she had to really go back through like, leotards and what car did he drive and what house did he live at to figure out how long it had actually been going on because when you're traumatized at that level you you repress it and you you dissociate from it and it's totally normal to do that so i think there were you know it, there was a huge power in in the two of us together and having yeah. each other as friends and being able to say yes that really happened and then he left and I was devastated, right? Like, I bet I would love him, you know? So one of the coolest things that I did for myself, and I'm so glad I did it now, was I wrote and asked, like, if you love me so much, what was going on with Shannon? And why are you married? And what, you know, and he did, he wrote back and he wrote this letter that was like, let's talk about this. You know, I kissed you and Shannon kissed me. And, and you know, I, I told you I loved you then. And I, you know, like all this stuff. But he wrote, like, I kissed you in a letter and then said, destroy this incriminating evidence, you know, and then a few more letters were pretty, like, send me lovely pictures, you know, that meant naked pictures. And I sure as hell never did that because, like, I was terrified. But I kept them all. I kept all those letters from him for 15 years. I bet they probably made it, like, to 12 different apartments, you know, all through college and all through Breckenridge and grad school and finally landing in California. And um, I had them and I knew where they were all the time. And when I finally went to the therapist, that's what I gave him. I gave him the, the three letters were the most that were the most incriminating. And I said, my gymnastics coach wrote these to me when he was 30 and I was 15. And I went to the bathroom, <laughs> like ran away to the bathroom. <laughs> and when I came back into his office, he asked me like, wait, tell me again, who were, what happened, you know? And I told the story and he said, I need to file a CPS report. And I went, 
but really, you know? And so I was a mandated reporter at the time and I knew the laws and I just could, I just couldn't apply them to me. You know, I didn't, I didn't see it that way even then. And so that was really what like, oh, that therapist would save my life in so many ways because he validated it, you know? Just hearing that, like, I'm going to make a CPS report. Oh, maybe it was a big deal, you know? And so I could start to really like own the fact that, yes, it was really wrong and own the fact that, yeah, it was actually a crime. So I started looking up the statute of limitations and I reached out to Shannon and she and I actually, instead of like, we didn't just get together and go make a police report. We had a a reunion event in this amazing setting in California. She was dating a guy at the time and his friend owned a helicopter in a lake resort. And so she flew into Sacramento and this guy came and picked me up in a helicopter. We're flying in a helicopter together. Like that's the first time we'd seen each other in 12 years. We had so much fun playing on boats all weekend long, like swimming in the lake and eating bacon and just like loved our reunion. And then, then we went, then I went home and and made the police report a few weeks later. But that same month I met my husband. So right after we had our reunion in, in California, I met my husband that following weekend. And then I flew back to Ohio to make the police report and I introduced Shannon to her husband. So it was just like, there's so many magical things about this story, you Mm -hmm. know, like such good stuff that came out of owning it. Really the owning it part of it is what was the most healing is just owning that this was a wrong and, and stop the hiding of it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's not something that I should be ashamed of. He should be ashamed of it. I should not be ashamed of it. And just really processing all of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When would you say you started your healing journey? Like a flag in the ground. Like there's something off here. Yeah. I need to do something about this. And I think it has to do with this thing that happened with my coach. Yeah. Well, the formal, like when I, when I connected it, I really think it was when I called off my engagement, but I had been doing my own healing work. I just didn't know that's what it was because, so I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism when I was 15. And then like, I I thought I was going to have to be on thyroid medication for the rest of my life. But in Breckenridge, I got off that medication. And so those days in the mountains, I knew that I was better. I knew I was a healthier, happier individual when I was living in Breckenridge and I was working at a doctor's office because it was before PA school and I had to have medical experience. So she tested my labs and I was over medicated and never in the eight years prior to that or whatever it was, had I ever had any changes in my medication. So I was like, Oh, I'm better. Like that. I remember that clicking in my head. Like, Oh, I think I'm healed now because I didn't associate the hypothyroidism with the abuse at the time that I was diagnosed with it. But I did by that time associate getting off that medication with being somewhat over that period of time, right? Mm. The depression that came along with it, just the like stuff that came along with that period of time. And so that was a really good sign to me in my own brain, like, oh, I'm better now. But then as I went to PA school and, you know, got my real job and had my real house and all that stuff, and I was just like, And I had, I mean, like the guy that I was engaged to was amazing, like really, really good guy. And when that ended, I was 
physically ill. Like I was vomiting and just, I had never had a breakup that hurt that bad. And I think it was as much just me feeling like a total failure. When we got engaged, it was almost as if I thought we were married already. Calling off an engagement was just like getting divorced to me. And because my parents divorced hurt me so much, I was like, I will never get divorced, you know? So I felt just rock bottom if there was one. And so that's when I said, okay, I'm going to a therapist. I'm going to a male therapist. I made that decision too, because I was like, I have issues with men and I think I need to talk to a man about them. And that was a good decision too, because I think in my messed up brain, right? Like I'm just, I had gone to a couple females before. I'm kind of a skeptic. So like one person telling me to do something, I'm kind of like, eh, you know, you're a doctor, but I know a lot about medicine too, or you're a therapist, but I, you know, like I just kind of discount it. But this man, he was really good and he was really soft-spoken and gentle yet clear, you know, like when he said, I'm going to make a CPS report. It wasn't like, I think I should make a CPS. He was like, I'm making a CPS report. And one of the things that he said to me too later on, and I think it was actually when I went back to him after our worship leader got arrested, because I was really triggered and just scared and fearful for my kids and all that. And he said to me, you know, Tori, you were hurt once by one person in your life, but you haven't been hurt really badly again like that. And, and so think of the world as a safe place. And I was like, oh, you're right. You know, like really you're right. And so he was just great and he really, really helped me. And in that time I'd been doing a ton of yoga too. So I, I just really reached out and did the things that felt good to me. And in my like own healing work and then teaching people about it, I just call it a toolkit, right? Like you can choose to drink alcohol or you can choose to meditate. You know, you can choose to go rock climbing or you can choose to shoot heroin, you know? And I think that we're all making these choices every day. And if you choose coping mechanisms that are good for you, that feed you and they don't tear you apart and tear you down, you can heal without any professionals for sure. But the professionals can help speed the process a lot if you get the right ones. So I've never been a proponent of like, there's this modality that you have to use. You have to do talk therapy if you've been sexually abused. Like, I think you should try whatever you're called to try, right? Like if there's an acupuncturist that you meet and they really resonate with you, then go see them, let them do their work, you know, or if you just really want to go canoeing or whatever it is, like do what calls you, but don't, don't beat yourself up about it further and make the matters worse by alcohol and drugs and self medicating. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, I think I, I really did start healing as soon as I left Ohio and in Ohio, I mean, like if you would have seen me in college, you wouldn't have been like, Oh, she's a shit show. Like, <laughs> you probably would have been like, yeah, she's getting A's and B's and pre-med classes and she's got a job. And like, you know, like it's easy for my parents to have seen me as a totally together successful person because on the outside I was, but on the inside, as a shit show. Mm -hmm. And the reality of addressing like that internal shit show. (laughs) (laughs) Until the engagement fell through. Yeah. Yeah. Why did the engagement fall through? Were you scared? Were you self-sabotaging? Did he know? Uh, So he has his own wounds and I think maybe our wounds just didn't align, but I really wanted to have kids. Like this for me was probably the deal breaker. I, I really wanted to have kids. And I actually had said like, don't ask me to marry you if you don't want to have kids. And he didn't know when we first met. And then, you know, we dated for about a year, year and a half before we got engaged. And when we got engaged, like, I I think I said yes right away, but we had had the conversation of like, 
he had said, I think I could see having kids with you, you know? And so I was like, okay, good, let's do this, you know? But there were, there were more red flags in that. I just didn't feel like his goals and my goals were totally in alignment, like outside of the kid thing. But then we got engaged. And then a couple months later, maybe he said, like, I'm just not sure I want to have kids. And I lost it, right? He's like, that was not, that was a deal breaker for me. But then it was just kind of this back and forth of like, what's going on here? But I never, I'm a planner, right? Like when I got engaged to my husband, I was planning the wedding like day one. I never started planning the wedding with him. So I think that there was a piece of me that knew like this just isn't going to happen. But in the writing of the book, this was really cool because I hadn't talked to him. Like we, I had learned that it's not that healthy to be great friends with your ex-boyfriends by then. And I think he dated a girl right after me that wasn't really cool with him talking to me. So we were really not in touch very much. But when I wrote the book, I knew that I needed to share it with my ex-boyfriends because I wanted to use my real life story and they were a huge part of it. And he was a huge part of it. So I jumped on the phone with him and it was funny because I was at a gymnastics gym because my kids were taking a gymnastics class. So I'm in the gym talking on the phone to my ex-boyfriend and he had really great things to say about it. Like he had read the chapters that he was in. And then I think he read the whole book too. And we were just kind of talking about like, do you need me to change anything? Stuff like that. But I got to say to him, like, thank you so much for asking me to marry you because that is what allowed me to do this work. Like, I don't think if we hadn't been engaged and it had just been another breakup, I don't think I would have dug deep enough to like really look at the truth of my own stuff. And so it was such a cool conversation in my book coach. I had reached out to her that round then and been like, I feel like I'm in a 12 step program. <laughs> um, but it really is like writing your, rewriting your story, you know, like the true blue book, 12 step program, you got to go back and you got to say you're sorry and you got to like put shit right. And I did that as much as I could, you know, like my ex-boyfriends, I think are mostly supportive of this. I think there's a lot of collateral damage in this story, you know, even from the gymnast who told me about Shannon holding guilt and shame about not doing something about it. She was a child. She shouldn't have had that shit on her in the first place. And so like, it's sad to me that there are so many human beings that are carrying around stuff because of this one man's bad behavior. And I really feel like that's how we need to look at it moving forward is like, right. it's not about my story or my hurt or my trauma. It's about this societal, just brush it under the rug and don't talk about it and it'll be okay. We can't keep doing that. We have so many mental health struggles in this country already. We do not need one in four women or maybe probably more than that to have this in their history where they have to deal with this and the repercussions of it for however long, you know, I mean, and for yeah. men too. Yeah. And for men it's, too. It's such as it's a silent epidemic that we are more Absolutely. aware of than we ever have been. Yeah. But yeah, it is by talking about it that it, it's healed or, or it begins yeah. to heal, I should say. Well, and we're aware so that we can prevent it in the, for future generations, you know, mm -hmm. like if we're teaching our kids consent, then great, you know, but if I never had a conversation about consent when I was a little kid, um, and I talk to my kids about it all the time, you know, so that shifting and, you know, you mentioned men and, and I know that men are definitely victims of sexual abuse for sure too. I usually just speak from my own perspective, but I think the other thing that we should talk about more too, is it's not just like men that are sexually abused that are impacted by this. It's all the men that are in relationships with women who have been sexually abused that have 
messed up sex lives too. You know, like we are all living in a world of not having the best sex lives because so many of us have had negative sexual experiences, especially when we're young. It, it just taints the way you can live into your true, beautiful, you know, natural, healthy sexuality. So yeah, I think, I think men should be just as involved in this conversation, not just because of the abuse victims, but because of their partners of ours. So yeah. And it's also, I, I don't understand the psychology of the people that abuse, but there's obviously something short circuited around that, like to where they're getting their sense of self-worth and power off of hurting yeah. and taking advantage of and, and really just abusing a power dynamic that I, I can't wrap my, I don't understand it. And I haven't sought to understand that, that um, role in all of this. But it's, it's definitely related to like toxic masculinity about what men get inundated with and what it means to be a man, quote unquote. And so I think the more that women, the right where we're at, we start to unpack what is oppressing us, our own, yeah. how, how we're not fully living into our authentic selves and doing the work of healing and, and really fully living. But then we can also help those around us and hold a clearer mama bear boundary around Absolutely. everybody around our daughters around our sons around our nieces and nephews around ourselves around our relationships all of that like it's all related because women perpetuate it with their passivity especially, Absolutely. especially white women we Absolutely. perpetuate it with our passivity yeah. i agree yeah. well one thing i would say on that too is is that likely he was abused too you know and he did tell me a story of something that happened to him in a way of like trying to explain why he did this, you know, like, cause I was like, why did that happen? You know, when, when he came back from chiropractic college and he came to my house and he tried to kiss me and I said, no, you know, I was probably 16 at the time. I said, no. And, and I kind of was like, what happened there? Why, you know? And he said, he, he, he told his story. Like, yeah, I was like raped by my babysitter or something like that. You know? So, so the generational handing down of this is, this is our chance to stop it. And, and I don't like, I think that that's true too. Like I can't understand it. However, I don't have any like anger or anything towards perpetrators anymore because I feel like they're just a product of this society. They've been taught to tell women what to do. And you know, like that whole toxic masculinity you're talking about. My, my father passed away in April and he was uh, an American, like a history teacher. Right. And going back through a lot of his old books, like I didn't dig into them, but I know how skewed the historical, you know, documentation is for not just for women, but for, you know, African-Americans being, you know, taught like the, they were lesser humans. Right. So like there's so much history and, and societal beliefs that are ingrained in us from so many, so many years that that's what we've made a mm -hmm. lot of men into, you know? And, so, and it's, it's not just African-Americans that were taught that it's everybody that was taught that. So it's yeah. white people that internalize our superiority that right. that's our work. Right. And it's, people of colors, folks internalized oppression. So it's like right. this whole lie that I, th I mean, I think white supremacy, actually white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism are so intricately connected. Yeah. Like it's like, start with where you're at and what you're yes. dealing with and heal right. that. And then yes. the roots of it are the same. And that's why 
the revolution will be intersectional. (laughs) That's why it really is intersectional. So yeah. Yeah. I know you said earlier that just writing it, getting the story out of you was hugely cathartic and therapeutic. And your story is so unique in that you had a witness, like most people don't have a witness. Right. And that you won. And most people, it doesn't even go to court. So you have like this awesome story of justice. You also come from a lot of privilege. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of privilege. And so as do I, I'm not saying like I have white girl (laughs) as well. So yes, but like that you're able to have support and you're able to have um, just power and knowing that they're good. They believe you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I agree. All those things are very true. Like I, and, and even the, the title for me is so funny because like, it really, like I know compared to so many people's trauma, it really was no big deal. But if we can start looking at this story and at other, you know, stories as like, well, wait a second, but that's not what we want our, for our children, right? Like, even if it wasn't as bad as somebody else's story, I don't want that for my daughter. Right. Um, well, the like, thing is, no, it is a big deal. Right. <laughs> like, it isn't, and it was like, it's a spectrum, and we are not in the suffering Olympics. And so that's where, <laughs> right, that's like where you having the courage to be like, okay, it could have been worse. But owning yeah. it and being like, oh, suck it up, buttercup. You know, like it's not, a, it's not like you were brutally raped. No, but that's the nuance of it. Like that's actually the right. point of your story, I think, is to say, no, this is what it looks like. It could have been worse under different circumstances. But this is the, the abuse of the power dynamic. And exactly. then let's have better conversations like you're talking about with your kids about consent, about boundaries, yeah. about being transparent, about what's going on, about keeping lines of communication open and giving, seeking out tools to better support us around this issue. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I just, yeah, I would just say like both of like our lives, my friend and I's like, they're so good. Like we're, we've both been married for close to 10 years now. We both have two children. Like we're so happy and we talk to each other about it all the time. We never could have imagined being this happy. And we really feel that our, you know, yes, we're really happy that we got the, the justice that, that we sought, but our happiness started after we spoke the truth of it. Not, not after he went to prison, you know? So she was already married by the time the trial happened. And I just feel like that's, that's a bigger, like, I want that to be the take home because, because if you don't get your perpetrator to prison, but you can at least own the truth of it in yourself, I think you will find so much freedom in that. It's not necessarily about putting your perpetrator in prison. It's more about owning your truth. Yeah. And it's, it's justice within your own self. Yeah. Of kind of reclaiming that scared 12 year old girl who needed to admit to a lie that wasn't true. It's like restoring that justice within yourself of like, exactly. This is, yeah, this is what the truth is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are you most proud of? (sighs) My kids. (laughs) I'm also most proud. I'm, I'm really proud that we did this. My friend and I, we, we went through a lot of hard times during the like reconnection to the trial and just not knowing if this was the right step or if this is what we wanted to do. But even since then, you know, when we've stood in each other's weddings and then when I started writing this book, like this wasn't, hasn't been easy for her at all. And then her responses are, you know, I take them personally and, you know, so we have navigated a very interesting and 
dynamic and extremely strong friendship through all of this. But so I'm proud of both of us for standing up and saying things about it and not just even, you know, I could have just let that story rest, but I feel like it is worth talking about. So I'm proud of myself for that. So you, I know you have a bold wish. <laughs> you have a bold wish for what you want for the world by 2030. Can you please declare that for us? I would love to declare that for us. Yes. <laughs> so right now the statistic is one in four women will be sexually violated by the age of 18. And by the time my daughter is 18 and 2030, I would like, see, it jokes me up every time. I would like that statistic to be down to at least one in 10. I mean, I would like it to be gone, but if it's down to one in 10, that's making an impact. Mm -hmm. That's changing the world. What do you want your legacy to be? I really think that the one in, one in 10 by 2030 would be a, a fantastic legacy. Um, if I can, if I can raise two kind and wonderful humans that contribute positively to the world, that would be fantastic. As far as my clientele and the people that I work with, it's just showing them that life can be a fun adventure no matter what you've been through. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And do you have a prayer for our country, the world, or the planet? If you're carrying around hurt and pain, it's not helping anybody, basically. So, like, I guess my prayer for us as a country or the world would be that you can recognize that the pain and the hurt and the anger and the shame and the guilt and whatever that you've got inside of you, if you let it go, you can be so much happier and healthier and a much more productive part of this world. Like, it's not doing anybody any good for you to beat yourself up inside. Um, so whatever way you can find to let go of that, start today. Mm -hmm. And to heal that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing the work to own your story and to reclaim your wholeness and your freedom and to be a catalyst for that for others around you through the process and the courage to just stand up. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for your commitment to doing that in the future as well. I will continue. Yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening. Again, that was Tori Ivanik, and you can learn more about her book tour and services at openspace4, that's the number four, dot com. You can purchase her book on or after July 31st, 2018 on amazon.com. If you or someone you know is navigating sexual abuse or trauma, please see the inset in the SoundCloud description for resources to healing and thriving. This week, the call to action is to pause, reflect, and take inventory of what areas of life are calling for a deeper level of healing within you and your life. Acknowledge it in some way, to yourself, your journal, a loved one, someone you trust. Then take one step towards getting support in the area you want to heal. Healing and thriving is not only possible, it is your birthright. If you have a story to share or an experience that helped you find your voice, I'd love to hear your story. Go to she'sheard.com to keep in touch and learn of more opportunities to connect. Tune in to the next episode. More inspiration, wisdom, and insight is on the way. Until next time, standing in our collective liberation, be well. <laughs>